Out podcast this year, we've talked a lot about the failings of the mainstream media and the reasons why the legacy press has lost the public's trust. But for the month of December, we'll be focusing on one of the bright spots of the media landscape, and that is the independent press. Over the next few weeks, I'll be speaking with some of the journalists that I most admire, who are doing fantastic work at Substack and elsewhere. We kick off this series today with Leighton Woodhouse. He's an independent journalist and documentary filmmaker in Oakland, California. His Substack is called Social Studies. Leighton Woodhouse is my guest today on Lean Out. Leighton, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really nice to have you on. Uh, your body of work as a journalist is quite diverse. Uh, everything from factory farming, immigration, the alt-right, crime, drugs, addiction. You've published everywhere from The Intercept and The Nation to Newsweek. But I first came across your work at Barry Weiss's Substack, a piece titled Cory Bush Wants to Defund the Police. My Neighbors Have Other Ideas was really striking because it complicated the narrative so profoundly. Walk me through what you were hearing and seeing in your own neighborhood in Oakland that led you to report out that piece. Well, it was a so I believe that piece was written in I think it was 2021 and it was um not too long after the summer of BLM protests. And so, you know, there are these calls to defund or even abolish the police everywhere. You know, bear in mind I'm I'm here in the Bay Area, so while there were calls to defund the police nationwide around here, there were, you know, also vocal voices going in a even more radical direction calling for just the end of, of police altogether. So meanwhile, what I was seeing in my neighborhood, I live in East Oakland. It's a, you know, traditionally an area with a pretty high crime rate. And at that particular time, which was sort of towards the end of the pandemic or towards the middle of the end of the pandemic, I should say, the the violent crime rate was 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 really surging and it was surging in you know of course the lowest income least white areas of the city and in those areas you know the residents of those i i i've interviewed a, a ton of people including violence interrupters including my city council member including folks at a black barber shop by the way all of the people in the barber shop had been because i asked them all had had served prison time and and they were all of the the same opinion that most people in the neighborhood are uh, of which is scaling back the police in this area would be crazy and i point out the fact that they were that they had all served time to to emphasize the fact that these were not you know fans of the Oakland police department <laughs> But uh, but nevertheless, I asked them, you know, what would happen in your neighborhood if we cut the police by 50 percent? I mean, at that time, there were calls in Oakland to cut from city council members in Oakland to cut the police budget by 50 percent. I said, you know, what would happen if the police presence was cut by 50 percent in your neighborhood? And they said, it'd just be, a, you know, it'd be what you would expect. It'd be crazy. It'd be for free for all. So what I was seeing from these calls of sort of uh, performative progressive democrats to defund the police you know members of the squad etc i was seeing the exact opposite coming from the from the constituents who they, whose interest they purport to stand for from low income non-white americans who were calling for 
a greater police presence and whose fear was of crime, not the police. I mean, sure, there's people who, if they're stopped by a cop or if they're around a cop, might get a little bit nervous that they might have an encounter with the wrong cop who might hassle them up. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not blind to that threat. But when people in my neighborhood leave their house, if they're, if they have any anxiety, it's not about the cops. It's about, well, at that time in particular, when crime rate was really surging, it was about being jacked up by some criminal. So that's what I wanted to write the piece about to reflect the fact that that was really what was coming out of, um, and polls have borne this out, that that was really what was coming out of the low-income communities in America, not this um, radical defund or even abolish the police message. It's interesting. It was one of the first pieces that I read that really unpacked a lot of this. And at the time I was in the mainstream media, it was a really difficult thing to even touch as a topic. And so I think it's a really good one to look at in terms of how the media works and how it operates. For people outside the press, it's sometimes hard to understand the exact mechanisms that drive this sort of phenomenon of groupthink. And you had a great tablet piece recently on how the media manufactures consent in reference to the controversy over John Fetterman and and Dasha Burns at NBC. Walk us through your central argument in that piece and the the role that you see journalists playing. Yeah, well, what we saw with with that interview, um, and for folks who don't recall, this was when, for after uh, many months of John Fetterman refusing to be interviewed or make public public appearances, he granted an interview to NBC News. And this young reporter, Dasha Burns, um, was the one who conducted the interview. It was a big score for her. And she reported it as I would expect any self-respecting journalist should, which is that she called it the way that she saw it. And what she saw was that this was a guy who was still suffering acutely from the effects of his stroke and who, during the sort of pre-interview banter, wasn't clear whether he was he understood the words that she was saying, the sentences that she was she, she, that she was putting together because he didn't have a, a teleprompter in front of him or a, a whatever it's called, the transcription service in front of him. And she said so on NBC News. And of course, you know, you can imagine that if the shoe is on the other foot, and if it was Dr. Oz or some other Republican coming out of a stroke and a reporter noted that they were um, that they seemed to be cognitively impaired, it's hard to imagine that the media would have reacted the way that it did with Dasha Burns echoing a line of attack on a Democratic politician who the mainstream media was clearly in favor of, uh, clearly in his camp. Sorry about that. I have a very loud dog. Um and uh, and so the response was it was just a pile on on uh, social media. And so the point that I was making from that is that Twitter has has become this sort of disciplinary mechanism for media for journalists who get out of line. It's a way it's a way in which folks who are like people who are you know journalism has become this is no this is no secret. Um, journalists is, j- journalism has become a much more activist profession. Over the last, you know, five or six, maybe ten years, and so you know, within within the profession, there are those who seek to discipline their own colleagues who step out of the who stray from the party line. But Twitter is a place where they're able to sort of find and collaborate with folks who are not in the media profession who can echo that critique. So if you get out of line, you find yourself dogpiled in an instant. And you oftentimes these, as as it was in the case of Joshua Burns, oft, oftentimes the call to arms is is initiated by fellow journalists. So, you know, the call to action is initiated by journalists. And that's not to say that they, you know, literally say, hey, let's all pile on Dasha Burns. But 
um, a media consensus forums. In this case, it was Kara Swisher and a couple of other journalists who who gave voice to it, Rachel Traster. And once that media consensus forums, oftentimes, you know, their followers join in. And this is a known phenomenon on Twitter. And it becomes a way for wayward journalists to be brought back into line with the consensus of the journal of of the media profession. And it's disturbing. It's um it's in the piece I compare it to Noam Chomsky's now outdated model of manufacturing consent. This is sort of the new the digital era's way to manufacture consent and sort of self-censoring among journalists. Yeah, it's so striking. And you had a really good tweet related to this recently with your colleague Lee Fang. He drops this blockbuster story for The Intercept on leaked DHS documents and its plans to police disinformation. And as you pointed out, the extent that the left-leaning mainstream media paid attention to it, it was to scold Lee for going on Tucker Carlson. What was going on in that instance? Yeah. um, So Lee was, Lee's a good friend. He was invited on Tucker Carlson. He was, he was, I can tell you, firsthand because I know it from Lee that he was it's not as if he was refusing appearances on on other shows. He simply wasn't invited. He wasn't even invited on like Democracy Now. I think they may have had him on, on later. I I, I um, but at the time they had not. So look he's he's gonna go on whatever I mean, Tucker Carlson is the most pop, popular cable show in America. Uh, he he went on um, because he had an important story to tell, and it was just another example of what I'm talking about. He was, I think, Aaron Rupar, I believe, may have been the first to sort of start initiate this dogpile. He tends to take on the the role of sort of um, Twitter journalist disciplinarian, and then this pile on ensued. And so instead of journalists paying attention to the to these profound revelations in his story. Or, hey, secondarily to that, they could have focused on the fact that he somehow wasn't being invited on these other news outlets, which, which, which is another important phenomenon that was happening at the time, that he, that this story was being sort of memory hold. Instead, they piled on him for being a horrible human being for having gone on Tucker Carlson. Um, and by the way, I, I, even, even the co-author of that piece, Ken Klippenstein, sort of renounced the importance of his own story on Twitter. Somebody, I think, I think because Josh Hawley, I believe, had pointed to some some disfavored politician had said this is a very profound story or some disfavored pundit. And Ken's response to it was, oh, you know, I wrote the story and even I don't think it's that important. And to me, it was just another it was like, OK, well, he, he didn't want to get on. You know, he didn't he, he saw which ways the which way the wind was blowing. He saw what was happening to Lee and he didn't want to get on the wrong side of that. So he threw his own story under the bus, which I thought was just crazy. So wild. Um, I, I'm curious about your experience. I mean, we've just lived through this COVID era. It's the most extreme. I've been a journalist for 20 years. It's both one of the biggest stories and the most kind of extreme stories I've ever been involved in covering. Um, how do you think this era has impacted the media and the way the media operates? Well, you know, the big factor, of course, was Trump um, prior to the pandemic that really uh, there's there, there's a whole sort of series of events um, happening within the industry. Um, the first big shockwave was the collapse of the advertising-based model of of journalism, the model that has sustained the business, the business model that has sustained journalism for decades. And then Trump sort of hypercharged a lot of these tendencies that were already in motion, tendencies of political polarization and the, the partisanizing of the media. And then COVID 
You know, I haven't given a lot of thought to specifically how COVID affected journalism, but the way that it was reported out was another example of what's happened. And I'm thinking specifically around the lab leak hypothesis, which, by the way, was was one of the things that really started to make me much more skeptical of the left. I come from the left. Years ago, I was a labor organizer. I've always identified with the left. I still identify with the left of yesteryear, um, the left of today, I'm, I'm much more skeptical of. And one of the things that made the first thing that sort of made me the most skeptical of it and of the media's role within the left was this burial of the lab leak hypothesis and the use of this language around racism and bigotry to silence anybody who even brought up the possibility that this may have come from a lab. And by the way, I'm not talking about the bioweaponry theory. I'm talking about the accidental lab leak hypothesis, which I think is there's a, an enormous amount of evidence that points to its likelihood. So that I think was was a big deal for me personally. And then the other big deal for me personally that happened during COVID was that open letter that was signed by a bunch of physicians saying, if you go out and protest lockdowns, then you are um, a bad person. But even while we're, while we're enforcing these lockdown rules, we're going to give permission to anybody who go. In fact, not even do we give permission for for people to go out and protest the police. But this is the other pandemic that's happening right now is racism. And so we are morally obligated to go out and break the lockdown orders and not socially distance. I mean, I suppose they did say in the letter, we should stay socially distanced in the protest, but that's ridiculous. Um, and so that hypocrisy and it's not even so much the hypocrisy. I mean, it is the hypocrisy, but it's also just the the flagrant politicization of our expert class started to draw me into some a pretty deep hole of skepticism, which I have written quite a bit about on my Substack. Yeah, I, re- I really relate to that and went through a similar progression. You have a, a popular Substack piece on the generation that wrecked the media. I just want to read a quote from that. We are left with a media industry increasingly untethered from the values that its most devoted practitioners had once defined for themselves, and that is instead beholden to values borrowed from a different enterprise of human activity altogether, that of political activism. I really witnessed this in the newsroom. Talk to me a little bit about the sort of erosion of norms that you're seeing taking place within our profession. I mean, I think that, so I pointed in that piece to the millennial generation, you know, a very picked on generation. Um, So uh, I don't relish sort of kicking a dying horse, but, um, but in some ways it's deserved, but it's a generation actually that in this story, I think I was, I was somewhat sympathetic to this, uh, to the experience of this generation, even though I was um, very disapproving of the outcome of it, which is that this is a generation that this, I'm talking about the elite cadre of this generation, the, the, the folks who went to four year universities and who, who were, whose life trajectory was carrying them towards an uh, upper middle class future who found themselves this is the story from like hbo's girls right who found themselves on a job market where all they could get were these like unpaid internships and crappy barista jobs and uh and whose sort of sense of entitlement and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean they were literally kind of promised that you go to a four-year university and this is your future they were in their minds entitled to it because they had been you know, that was the the message, though that was the cultural norm, found themselves stranded in a crap economy. And they had just come out of schools that had already become sort of political indoctrination factories. I mean, this is just that's a separate issue of what's happened with the universities. And so 
they saw the injustice in their own lives and they extrapolated it. They sort of, a lot of them went into media. I mean, a lot of them went into a lot of fields. Tech probably took a much bigger share, but quite a few of them went into media because what do you do with a humanities degree, right? When there's, when there aren't a lot of, um, of jobs out there and they took their sense of injustice, the sense of injustice that they'd experienced for themselves combined with their politicized mindset from their recent experience at the university and then projected it upon the world around them and hyper-politicized everything, hyper-moralized everything and transformed the field of journalism into a, you know, a lot of journalists today, younger, you know, this is this is a generation that's now middle-aged, but younger-ish journalists will tell you straight up that they see their role as as fighting for social justice. And so then you start to like, okay, so your life goal is to be a activist. Yeah, that's your life's purpose. And journalism is the medium by which you are exercising that activism. Like instead of going into a nonprofit and being issue advocacy group or becoming an organizer or something like that, you're using journalism as your way of trying to create social change. It's like, okay, that's fair, I suppose, or that's a choice you can make. But it's important that we all then recognize that that's what's happening and read the New York Times accordingly and understand that this is quite literally propaganda that journalists who a lot of the and I don't want to point at all journalists there's still great journalists out there who are very fair-minded but a lot of the journalists out there are consciously writing this stuff in order to advance a particular political agenda they they are aware of it they are deliberate in that effort and so we should read this journalism as such just lastly Leighton I'm wondering about how you think about the rise of independent media we're seeing uh, the success of people like Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi Glenn Greenwald but also, I mean, I'm managing to have a, a pretty decent living on it. I, I assume you are as well. How mm-hmm. do you think through this this countercurrent, this rise of the independent media? I mean, I think it's great. Um, the funny thing is that 20 years ago, 22 years ago, 23 years ago, I was um, I participated in the WTO protests in Seattle. And um, I remember there was, there was this um, outfit called Indie Media. They're still around. And... I don't have a lot of great things to say about indie media now. They're sort of uh, insignificant and basically just activist propaganda. But at the time they were forming, I was inspired by what was by this idea of creating this sort of activist media, even though I just um, criticized activist media at the time I was enamored with it. So fast forward to now. And the funny thing, I've thought about this before, because like now I do feel like there is an actual independent media sort of formation happening but it is the opposite of what I saw 22 years ago, 23 years ago, because it's actually counter hegemonic to the mainstream activist media. It's, it's, it's weird because it's like what we called independent media back then was the anti-corporate media, the media that would sort of present the left-wing point of view. And now the independent media is still anti-corporate media but it's embracing the values of old school journalism, right? It's it's reacting to a hyper-politicized, hyper-partisan corporate media. And now is embracing the values of like, be intellectually curious, get hear both sides of the story, ground your analysis in empirical fact and things like that. 
So I find that exciting. I, I, I think that there needs to be more of, there's a lot of independent media right now, which is more or less opinion and takes on the news. And that's understandable. It takes a lot less work. And if you're going to churn out a lot of, I mean, I do a lot of that. Um, and if you're going to churn out a lot of content, you kind of have to. Um, but I would like to see much more of what Barry Weiss, to her credit, is doing, which is um, which is hiring reporters to go do real reporting, to get on the ground, to go out there and and talk to people in the real world, discover facts that haven't been reported before, coming up with a new angle on the news, which is not just based on their opinion, but is actually based on reporting and investigating. So I, I think that things are moving in that direction. I, I think that there is going to be much more of that as places like Substack have proven to be financially sustainable. And I find that to be a very exciting future. So even though I'm I'm just, I'm extremely pessimistic about the mainstream media, I am very optimistic about what's happening in response to the, the monoculture that has formed out of the mainstream media. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I follow your work really closely. So it's such a pleasure to get to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.